Let's pray, and then we'll get to work. Jesus, um, just uh, excited to, as always, study another chapter in the Bible that points to you. Um, just thank you for, um, God, just thank you for the trial that you orchestrated for Jonah. Um, just to arrest him, to hold him, um, but ultimately in a, in a grander picture to point to you. And so we just thank you for um, that trial. Um, thank you for his willingness to repent amid, amid that trial. And applicably, I pray that we ourselves would learn to repent in the midst of trial. And so, um, Jesus, be glorified as always. Holy Spirit, we know that you're here. I need your power to teach. Um, I need you to take this from a speech and turn it into a sermon. Holy Spirit, we need you to have ears to hear. Um, score the hearts of the people that are here. Uh, let the message that comes from you sink in. Anything that I say, just have people forget it. There's no need for words of man. And so, just uh, we thank you for this chapter, um, and we uh, we commit the service to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we obviously were in chapter 1. We don't just teach from the Bible. We actually teach the Bible. That's the Calvary way. And so we're going through a four-week study in Jonah. And we kicked it off last week. Um, and if you weren't here, I'll do kind of a bit of a recap. Um, and, and again, look, this is one of those stories. Everyone's heard it, right? Everyone's just heard Jonah and the whale. Like you can go outside of Christianity and just people know Jonah and the whale, as they call it. Now, the Bible says a big fish. So when you hear all the people... The whale species didn't come into existence, the archaeology, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you're not even reading the Bible. It just says big fish, okay? So don't worry about when the whale species first appeared on the archaeological record, whatever. Forget that nonsense. Just the big fish. But, but everyone has heard this, right? This is just one of those things that, I mean, no one hears stories out of numbers when you're a kid, right? Right? No one reads numbers. You get three or four sentences, you're like, forget it. I'm going to read John again. Right? But everyone's heard of Jonah. It's, just, it's this amazing story. It's just this awe-inspiring. The kids love it. They're like, what? Right? And, and it's just this, this epic story. But as I implored last week, I don't want us to get caught up in that story. Like that, that the point of the book is Jonah and this big fish. It's not, as is the case with all of Old Testament. I mean, I taught through Hosea. I mean, talk about a radical, crazy book. A prophet, God tells a prophet to marry a prostitute. And just the whole book, every chapter, it's like, you guys are prostitutes, you're prostitutes, you're prostitutes, you're prostitutes, right? But ultimately, that was pointing to Jesus, and the same is true with Jonah. So that's where we have to stay focused. In the Old Testament, obviously in the New Testament, is you have to keep your eyes on, on Jesus. There's amazing imagery, but never take your focus, never take your gaze off the fact that this is God orchestrating events in the Old Testament to lead to his son coming on earth. And this is one of, the, one of the very few prophets that Jesus, I think there's only four, that Jesus actually references is Jonah. And we'll talk about that again tonight. And so Jonah is this, this epic short little book. It's a minor prophet, which doesn't mean that he was less than the other prophets. It just means that he wrote a shorter book than the other prophets, right? He was probably kind of busy or freaked out from this whole thing. He's like, I'll give you four chapters and I got to go back to my bed, you know? And so, but he's, he's just written this short little four chapter book, but it's this powerful story that just kind of even resounds outside of the church. And last week we saw that God himself shows up. And the book just kicks off, by the way. It doesn't just like introduce you and hang out anywhere and talk about background. And it just shows up. It says, look, get up. God shows up. It says, look, get up. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. God's like, 
you're a prophet, you're going to be prophetic in this regard, go to Nineveh. And as we talked about last week, prophecy is very simply this. It's God's word to flesh pointing to God's word as flesh. Okay? If a prophet doesn't point you to Jesus, he's just a mystic. He's just, he's, he's practicing demonism. There's two sides to the spiritual realm. If it's God's side of the spiritual realm, it will always point you to Jesus. And so true prophecy is God's word through flesh, pointing you to God's word come as flesh. And that's Jesus. And that's exactly what Jonah does. In, 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 it's, it comes no clearer than in this chapter. And no clearer that this is, a, this is going to point to Jesus. And so God sets up Jonah and says, look, I need you to go to Nineveh and proclaim that their wickedness has come up to me. It's so bad. It's a stench. It's absolutely disgusting. And why? And we took a look in Nahum where it says that this was a bloody city. It said it was full of lies and robbery. I love the way the Bible describes stuff. We should use this language more often. So that city is bloody. It is full of lies and robbery. It says that they stumble over corpses. People are like, is that a metaphor for the spiritual death? No, it's dead bodies everywhere in Nineveh. So bad that as they're coming out of the bars, they're stumbling over dead people. It is a bloody city. And God says, Jonah, hey, go there. And he's like, Bruh. that's cool. You're God. I'm going that way. A bloody city, corpses laying everywhere. God says, their wickedness has come up to me. God said, I cannot stand this anymore. Jonah, go call them out on their wickedness. Testify, call them out on how wicked they're being. And Jonah does what? He flees. He says, that's cool and all, God. And I know you're like big, but I'm going to run the other way. Some of us are like, what an idiot. What an idiot. Like God places calling on our lives and we don't show up. He doesn't. He doesn't speak to me. I've never audibly heard the, the word of God. You, you don't know what you're supposed to do? You don't know what God wants you to do? And he's calling Jonah to go testify. And what does he call us to do as we study this Bible? As we study this book? As we study these chapters? What is he calling us to do? Go testify. Go testify to the people that you think are just wicked. And to be honest, as we took a look at, look, one of the reasons that maybe he didn't want to go is because he feared for his safety. Best case scenario, they mocked the living daylights out of him. Best case scenario. What's likely going to happen is he shows up, he says, hey guys, and they're drunk, what? Uh, you guys are being wicked and, and God wants you to stop. And then they stab him and he's dead. Best case, I mean, best case scenario, he's just mocked and run out of town. Very likely, though, he fears for his life. This is a bloody city. Dead bodies everywhere. Seriously, bro? Hold on. Hold this. I'll take care of him. And back to drinking. Back to robbing. Back to lying. They're killing their own. Let alone some outside Jew coming in. Telling them that they're wicked. So quite possibly, he feared for his safety, rightfully so. But, but as I press, and the Bible doesn't say this, but, but quite possibly, quite possibly, Jonah didn't want them to escape God's judgment. If I just run, maybe God will just deal with them, but I can just kind of lead them on a foot chase for a while. 
And, and, and if we dug down deep, no one would say it in church because we want to, you know, oh, that's awful. But, but deep down, aren't, aren't there some people that you're like, you know what? I'm not going to pray for them. They deserve what's going to happen. They're wicked. Think about the groups that we ostracize. We just think, right? No, are you kidding me? They're Democrats. Republicans are laughing. It's, oh, no, it's Republicans. There's no Democrats here. Else they would be laughing, apparently. I'm neither. I don't, I don't care where you fall. I'm neither. Oh, the homosexual. No, yeah, I get, they'll get what's coming to them. I'm not going to pray for them. I'm not going to talk to them about it. Right? Think about those segments that we, we just set up. It's like, you know what? They probably just deserve it. Just, uh, let's do some, let's work with some church folk. Let's start another Bible study. Am I going to go talk to them and, and testify and go into that city? God says, no, absolutely. Because as again, as we studied last week, the Bible is very, very clear that before Jesus saved you, you too were an enemy of God. That we were by nature children of Jesus loves me. Is that what it says? By children, nature, or by, by nature, children of wrath. You come out the wound, headed for hell. That doesn't preach well. I don't like that, God. You come out the womb headed for hell. Everyone the same. And Jesus grabs people, yanks people. And then suddenly he yanks us. He's like, well, they deserve it. No, we all deserve it. And then Jesus took it, as we're going to discuss tonight. So there's no off limits. There's none. Look, Jesus didn't hang out with Bible nerds all day. He had his disciples, but he went into the parties. I'm not saying you got to walk into parties and start thumping the Bible. You'll get kicked out or beat up or something like that. Probably rightfully so, right? Mark's here. (laughs) Makes me feel funny, okay? (laughs) Right? But look, you go into those dark places spiritually. You go into those dark places. You talk to those coworkers. You talk to atheists. You talk to agnostics. You talk to Mormons. You talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. You talk to homosexuals. You talk to the people that you think, that's, that's just Nineveh. That's just the wicked people. They're probably just going to get what they deserve. And so yeah, Jonah ran. But guess what we do? Every day in the Christian life, we run. We run. And I, and I pressed on you last week to pray for the Holy Spirit to bring up the people that you should be pressing into. If you honestly do, he honestly will. He'll give you those people. But you can still choose to run. Jonah had a calling on his life. And he ran from it. And it's no surprise he found himself in calamity. It's no surprise. He ran from God's calling. Look, sometimes God's calling will lead you straight into calamity, to be sure. It's not like if you follow God's plan, it'll always be safe. It tends to be that if you follow God's plan, you'll actually be in a lot of danger, but you'll ultimately, your soul will be safe. But Jonah had a calling on his life and he ran from it. As Christians in America, in 2015, Bible-believing, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving Christians, you have a calling on your life to, as the Bible says, as Jesus commanded, to go into all the nations, all the nations, preach to every creature the gospel, how God saved you. 
That is your calling. If you didn't know that before tonight, now you're responsible for knowing that truth. As your pastor, I can tell you that that is the, the explicit call of the Christian life is to proclaim the gospel to every creature, every nation. You can't laugh at Jonah when we're doing the same thing. People are like, but I don't hear God. It's because you're not reading the Bible. It's because you're not talking with him. A lot of people talk about Jesus. Very few people speak with him. And you can. And so Jonah has this calling on his life and he runs from it. And he flees to Tarshish, which at that time they believed was like the edge of the earth. Okay? Again, they should have just read Job, oldest book in the Bible. Says that the earth is a sphere. We, God settled that with the first book of the Bible that he wrote. Okay? But they thought that that was the farthest. He was essentially in New York. He hitchhiked to San Francisco. And then he got on a boat to Hong Kong. So I'm going to go as far from this place to the opposite of where I am. I'm going I'm to get out of Dodge. And he gets onto this boat. And what happens? We, we love Jesus that calms the storm. But God shows up and does what? Causes a storm. Causes a storm. Stirs the waters. Strikes up the waves. Pushes the wind. And what's Jonah doing? You got to kind of love it. He's a little gutsy. He's just racked out at the bottom of the boat. He's out. The sailors are freaking out, chucking all their inventory. And all of, as we saw, all the sailors got what at that moment? Everyone got religious. Everyone started praying to their gods. God save me. God save me. Nothing was stopping. They're like, what about that guy in the bottom of the boat? They bring him up. Do you know anything about this? Jonah says, yeah. I'm the cause. What should we do? You throw me overboard. And what do they do? Do they take his advice right away? No, they're like, in front of this God? No, no, no. Let's keep rowing. You talk to him. You settle this down. So they start rowing. Nothing happens. They're not getting anywhere in this storm. Like, okay, so then they, then they talk to God. They try to buffer it. Like, look, this is going to go down. Clearly, you want this to happen. Don't, don't hold us accountable for this. Jonah, get up. And out Jonah goes. And the chapter ends, right? And last it was like, all right, come back next week. And here we are. And they chuck him. Who's been in the ocean before? Way out in the ocean. It's kind of intimidating, isn't it? I'm a scuba diver. The ocean is a huge place. I've never been out in the water in a storm. I can't imagine this. And he falls. And then this happens. It says, now the Lord had prepared in chapter 2, or just before, I, I don't like the break, 17 technically of the last chapter. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Seriously? Seriously, God, did this seriously happen? This is a cute story. It makes for great cartoons in, in Sunday school. But did this seriously happen? I don't know. Ask Jesus. Matthew twelve forty says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. This actually happened. This actually happened. Look, as a scuba diver, one of the greatest joys for scuba divers is to encounter whales. Blue whales, whale sharks. Anyone know what a whale shark is? 
Those things are epic. I, I flew to Fiji to try to swim with one. Okay? People go around the world to try to encounter these sort of mammals. God had one. We don't know what kind it was. Again, people are like, whale, but it, what the geology? Jesus said it happened. I trust it. Can't wait to ask him about it. Right? God stirs up a great big fish. And so they chuck him overboard. He very likely hit the water. And then suddenly, he was in. Suddenly, he was in. Like, he didn't have a candle. He didn't have a butane lighter. Okay? He didn't have a flashlight, an iPhone, you know, like you do in the middle of the night. None of that. He went into a very, very dark place. He was running from God's calling. He went into a very, very dark place, a disgusting place. Hit guts and bones on the way down. It says that God had prepared him. Now, why? He had prepared this fish. Why? Two reasons. To arrest and correct Jonah. To arrest. To stop him. That's what arrest means. Just to stop in his place. To stop Jonah. Running from his calling. Still in full rebellion. God says, stop. Stirs up the waters. Brings in the big fish that he had created just for this moment. The fish knows just where to go. Right at the amount, right at the perfect time to nab Jonah. So God orchestrating events in the Old Testament. Knowing that Jesus is coming. He arrests Jonah to correct him. And as I said, knowing that full well that this entire calamity would point to Jesus. Jesus goes on in Matthew twelve forty to say, so will, I'll read the whole thing, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jesus says, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This would be a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as we said, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. Every book in the Bible points to Jesus. In Genesis, Jesus would become the seed of Eve. In Exodus, he would become our Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our great high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar, which no one has ever read. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is both judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, he is the reigning king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of broken walls. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is the ever-living redeemer. In Psalm, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he is our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is our prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he is our righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. It says, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. 
Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. Some of you are like, what? Read the book and don't wait for the movie. And it says, Daniel, the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is our faithing husband, that faithful husband that pursues the prostitute. That's the church. In Joel, he is our baptizer. In Amos, he is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he's our great foreign missionary that comes into the world to save a group of people larger than Nineveh. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger of God's land. In Habakkuk, he's God's evangelist. In Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain open for sin and uncleanliness. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus. Jonah being no different. And so God orchestrates this calamity, orchestrates this radical event. I imagine as the seas calmed immediately, I imagine the mariners weren't very far off. They very likely saw it. This big fish come in and Jonah's gone. And Jonah's gone into the belly. It says, Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed. Three days, three nights. Look, God could have killed Jonah. Anyone read the Old Testament? God was not exactly afraid of killing people. He killed the priest that stopped the ark from falling into the dirt. Right? Like, that's the guy you want on your team. Like, he's wearing this really nice robe. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. It starts to tip. You want the guy that jumps in to save it. And God says, don't come near me. God in the Old Testament was angry. There was 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Clearly he got counseling. Sent Jesus to apologize. Right? God was not afraid of killing people. We talked about wrath last week. He has every reason to be angry. And anyone that won't tell you about God's anger is betraying you. The Bible speaks of his anger and his wrath far more than his love because you can't understand his love until you begin to scratch the surface of his wrath. And in Revelation, it says that Jesus comes back to tread the winepress of the fury of God. Why does Jesus get to dole out the fury of God? Because he absorbed it on the cross. The father poured it all into him. And now the father says, I'm satisfied. But all those that betray you, all those that won't put their faith in you, you have your way with them. And Jesus comes back in Revelation, the book we don't like to talk about in the church in America, to tread the winepress of the fury and wrath of God. And so Jesus currently absorbs and holds and stewards the wrath of God. And so, and so this, this, look, God could have killed Jonah. He probably should have, right? Like he just, he's, he's trying to get out of Manhattan. God's like, next prophet, you're running. This trip took forever for him to get there. God should have killed him, but he had a bigger story to tell. See, this is also, we, we look at this, we're like, this is, this is a story about God's Righteous judgment, which may be true, but this is also a story of God's mercy. You have to see the mercy in it. Jonah ran from God. He deserved death. But this points to the mercy of Jesus' death. 
Because every single person here, whether you're on the stage or in a chair, deserves death. But something happened about 2015 years ago. Took about three days and three nights. That was the greatest picture of mercy humanity has ever seen. All people for all times not getting what they deserve. Not getting what they deserve. All those who are in Christ will not receive what they deserve. And hell is not a place for people that are, or or heaven is not a place for people who are afraid of hell. You can't scare anyone into heaven. You can't get up here and talk about how bad hell is and people are like, well, I don't want to go there, so I might as well do the Jesus thing. Heaven is not a place filled with people who are just simply afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for people who understand they should be in hell and they love Jesus for saving them from it. Heaven is a place for people that love Jesus, understanding that God in his mercy poured out on Jesus what we all deserved, what Jonah deserved, death for betrayal. Look, the whole Bible should have ended in Genesis 3. God creates everything. It's epic. Marriage. They have sex. They sin. Nope. New story. The Bible should end in Genesis 3. People are like, oh, why? God comes down and curses them. He says it's going to, all this bad stuff. You're looking at God wrong. He didn't kill him. He didn't end the story. That's mercy. So he could have killed Jonah, but he didn't. He probably should have killed Jonah. But he didn't, but he's a just God. So that punishment did have to be dealt or else he's not just, yes? You're not a just judge if you say, well, you did it, but you're innocent, go, go free. Someone has to pay. Someone had to pay. And so Jonah would be used to point to Jesus who would pay. And so it points to the mercy of Jesus' death, not getting what we deserve. And it says this, and it says, he, that being Jonah, and I cried out to the Lord. Now check this out. A lot of people are like, why did it take him three days? Was it just because God just bled him out and just waited until he was super dehydrated? Couldn't drink the salt water in the belly. So three days, you're on the verge of death, no water. So then he cries out, no, 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 no. This is the prayer that is recorded. He has clearly already been talking to God about it. Because look, look what he says. He says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction and he answered me. He says, look, this has already happened. This is the prayer of thanksgiving for his deliverance, not the beginning of prayer at the end of his three days. See, in our trials, immediately jump to talking with Jesus. Immediately, don't wait. Don't wait. He didn't wait. In the belly, he was immediately... Now, God had to keep him there for three days. He had a purpose, right? But he was repentant in this. And so he says, I cried out, but he said that the Lord answered me. It wasn't the beginning of his prayer. He had been crying out already. Some of you are holding out in your trial to cry out. Stop. Just stop. As your pastor, I love you. Just stop. Knock it off. Cry out. Especially you men. You don't want to hear this. I can do this. I'm going to get through it. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Sometimes what doesn't kill you is still killing you. It's just taking a while. 
cry out. Ladies, you too, just cry out now. You brought trials here today. And if you didn't praise Jesus, but guess what? They're going to happen. You may not be in one right now, but if you brought trials here tonight, cry out tonight. Don't wait. So I got to see what Monday brings. No, you're not guaranteed Monday. Cry out tonight. He answered me. And notice that God had spoken his deliverance. It says, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. Your billows and your waves passed over me. I have been cast out of your sight. Look, he's still in the belly. God promised him deliverance. He wasn't out yet. And he said, God answered me. Now here's the thing with God's answers. We want him to have the answer that we want, right? Raise your hand if you're human. Okay, that's what we do. So it's a thing of ours. We just sort of do that. Look, in general, God has three answers. It's that simple. The Bible says, look, pray without ceasing. You have not because you ask not. Doesn't mean that God's a genie. You can't change the heart of God, but prayer changes your heart towards God. But God in general has three answers for your request. It says, you have not because you ask not. Just ask me. I'm a dad. I want to give you the good things. So we ask, and God has one of three answers. Now, when we ask for something, we want a yes. Every time my boys ask me for something, they want a yes. They're not asking for a no. Hey, dad, could we not go to the pool? Yeah, no, we're not going to go to the pool. Okay, good. I just wanted to ask. Can we not have cake for breakfast? Yeah, no, no cake for breakfast. Thank you. I was hoping you'd say no. That's good. It's just... We're asking for yeses, aren't we? Right? In your prayer life, you're asking for yes. And God says yes. But he can also say no. And he can also say, wait. Sometimes he says yes. Yay! It was in accordance with his will the whole time. Sometimes he says no. Which means you were wrong. Which is hard for us to hear. But it's good for kids to hear that. Trust me, you'll get that when you become a parent. But three, sometimes it's just wait. Boys asked me today after church. It's like, it's like 11 o'clock. Can we go to the pool? Wait. Just wait. Daddy needs to see if I can finish up some things. We've got to pick mom back up. We've got an elders meeting at this, that. If there's time, wait. We'll see. But we don't want to hear that from God. We want to hear yes to our answer because we already presupposed it would be a yes. He said he answered me. God said, you will be delivered, Jonah. But he hadn't even delivered him yet but he trusted him in that trial. He's still in the dark, still no lighter, still no iPhone. Smelled like fish guts, rope in there and bones and just gnarliness. He's like laying on the tongue or the innards or something, right? Just like... That might have been my best sound effect. Okay, and so he's still there, but God's promise of deliverance was enough. Is God's promise of deliverance enough, though you may still be in a trial tonight? Is it enough? God says, I will deliver you. Is that enough? Or do you need a yes? Are you that kid? I need a yes, God. A God that you can command is not a God at all. God said, I will deliver you. And yet there he sat, but he praises him. So I will be delivered from this. So I'm down with it. 
just cuddle up with that small intestine. You know, it's just whatever. God said, I'm good. He says, God answers me and God does hear you, by the way. You got to go to Psalm for this sort of stuff. God says this better than I ever could. He says this in Psalm 18, 6. He says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. God hears everything from you. He hears your frustrations. He hears your joy. He hears your thoughts. He hears your meditations. He hears your prayers. I can tell you this right now, as big as I I know I often paint Jesus on a throne, the Jesus of Revelation, that that section just gets me fired up. I love thinking of Jesus, just this commanding general. But you need to know he still hears everything you say. He's collecting every one of your tears in a bottle. The God that big is yet that personal. It separates him from all the fake gods the world has ever come up with. All the fake gods. God does hear you. It may not give you your yes right away. It may be a no or it may be wait. But you need to know that even in your trial, God hears you. Psalm 31, says, For I said in my haste, I am cut off before your eyes. Nevertheless, you've done that, right? Well, clearly God's done with me. Clearly God's angry with me. I dropped my iPhone and my screen shattered. You've done it. Okay, and so he says, nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. You heard the voice of my supplications. Psalm 42, 7 says, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls, all your waves and billows have gone over me. God hears all your pain. God hears all your joy. God hears all your prayer. God hears all your thoughts, all your words. He sees all your deeds. And he promises deliverance, though you may still be in the belly of your trial. When we go into a worship set after this, it's one of the reasons we do, we do heavy songs at the end. I want you to stand before the God of the Bible and, and just with a renewing of your mind, as Paul says, know that God hears you. This is not religiosity. It's not me saying, oh, who looks like they're praying? Oh, is he watching? Oh, God. I want you to stand before the creator of the universe knowing that he's listening to you. So he says that he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice for you. Notice he didn't say the sailors, right? You blame the world for your trial, blame the world for everything going wrong. And look, the Bible says sin will find you out, but you need to know everything that happens is not caused by God, but it is allowed by him. Everyone take a deep breath. That was allowed by God. That's what I mean when I say the word sovereignty. That was allowed by God. People say, God God caused Hitler. No, but he allowed it. And that's a myriad, that's a complex concept. But a God of mercy is waiting 
to dole out his judgment. He's waiting and he's listening to his children. He, he wishes that none perish. He's giving time for more to repent. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, but he's waiting for more to come to him. But he says, you cast me into the deep. You allow, now, and this is unique. This is Old Testament. Yet God made this happen for sure. For sure. But in your trial, God allows it for a sharpening. God allows you to go through trials. Look, a faith untested is not a faith at all. What's it a faith? A faith is despite your circumstances having a hope. Despite your circumstances, not the circumstances dictate your hope. It's in spite of your circumstances where you find your hope or your joy as we studied in our last study. He says, look, you cast me into the deep, not the sailors. He's not blaming the world for these issues. God, you allowed this to happen. I'm still under your sovereign control. And he says this, he says, for you cast me into the heart of the seas. This is verse three. And the flood surrounded me and your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. This is actually Jonah's greatest pain. This is actually Jonah's greatest pain. Is that he, in his rebellion, was running from fellowship with God. He was running from his calling before God. It was not that he got caught. It was that he was running in the first place. This causes pain. When you have an intimate relationship with Jesus, this causes you pain. That we would run from his calling. And we do have that calling. And Jonah did have that calling and he ran. And he says, look, it's, that is what causes me the greatest pain. Jonah realizing that his sin, his rebellion was separating him from fellowship with God. And it broke him. And for a lot of us, we're not willing in our trial. We want answers in our trial. God, why is this happening? Not what do you want me to learn while this is happening? How are you moving and stirring among the heart of your people in allowance of these these trials so that we may point to, because guess what? The calling isn't any different than it was in the Old Testament. Like, oh, the Old Testament, that's awesome. They get to point to Jesus. What do you think the church is doing right now? Jesus is coming back, yes? So what are we called to do right now? A ministry of reconciliation, as it says, pointing to, guess what? That Jesus is coming back. Do people see that in your life? Do they see it, more importantly, in the midst of your trials? That you can be in the belly of your trial and saying, I've been promised deliverance and I trust him. I'm in. It sucks. You can say life sucks, Christian. We went through the art of joy. If you missed it, it's on the website. It's four sermons. Go through the art of joy. Circumstances can be awful. I don't imagine being in the belly of this big fish, I don't care what kind of fish it was, was like happy day for him. Whatever you're going through, and I don't make light of it. Look, I've, I've lost two babies in the womb with my wife. I know about being crushed circumstances plummet trials like waves come over you and then you run to jesus and he says there is 
deliverance and then to just simply cling to that. Didn't mean it stopped hurting right away. It just meant that we found security in the sovereignty of Jesus. And so Jonah saying, I have been cast out of your sight, was broken by the fact that his sin was separating him from God. His rebellion, his running from God was breaking fellowship. Look, your sin is you hightailing it the opposite direction. That's it. That sin in your life, that addiction in your life, that relationship in your life, that anger in your life, that greed in your life, that lying in your life, that gossip in your life, that disobedience in your life, that disrespect in your life, is you, like Jonah, running from your calling before God? Christians are not called to those things. The Bible says sin will no longer have dominion over you. doesn't mean that we won't sin but it will not be our master any longer. So Jonah's broken. And look, I've talked about this before. Paul, Paul, like a, just a giant for the faith, right? Once was Saul. Once was Saul stoned Stephen, likely many other Christians, drug him off, started his ministry. Jesus knocked him around from heaven, said, stop, go. Then he starts his ministry and he's like, I am a sinner, Years and years and years, three missionary journeys, planting churches, pastoring people. At the very end, he says what? I'm a lot better now. What did he say? I'm the chief of sinners now. Why? How does a guy that's getting closer to Jesus become the chief of sinners? Because as you get closer to perfection, every infraction is even bigger. He went from stoning Stephen, and if he just had like, he probably just, if he used the Lord's name in vain, It was greater than that because he was closer to Jesus. It was a more grievous sin. Though he probably sinned less, every time he did, it was cosmic treason. And I pray when you see your sin that you pray. Look, when I I had to be broken, when I finally was broken of 17 years of addiction, 17 years of addiction on the internet, you know what I'm talking about? A couple young kids. Videos. I had to pray that God would make me disgusted with my sin. That was the prayer that broke it. And then he regenerated my heart. I just asked him for 16 years and 360 something days. I just asked him to help me stop. God, make me stop. Cosmic genies, make me stop. But when I finally, before God, got on my knees and said, you know what? Make me sick of my sin. I want to be disgusted when I think of that sin. This sin separates me from you. This is me casting myself from your your gaze. Whatever sin you brought here tonight, I pray that you just simply understand that it's cosmic treason. It's separating you from God. And Jonah's crying out. He says, I've been cast out of your sight. Yet. Verse 4, yet. I will look again toward your holy temple. He's in full-blown repentance. He was running this way, and now he's looking this way. He was running toward that addiction, that immoral relationship, that disobedience, that greed, 
that gossip, that lie, that slander, that betrayal, and now he was setting his gaze back on the cross. Forward on the cross in the Old Testament case. Pointing to the cross. That's our call tonight as Christians as well. He says, I will look again toward your holy temple. And Jesus came to what? Fulfill the temple, right? They didn't need the temple anymore. Jesus comes down and says, look, I'm now God dwelling among man. And now the Holy Spirit comes and says, this is God dwelling among men. He says, so I'll turn my gaze toward your holy temple. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. Verse five, the deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapping around my head. Anyone got caught up in seaweed in the ocean before? I'm a scuba diver. I carry a knife because I'm going to fight a shark. No, because of the freaking seaweed. Okay. Weeds were wrapping around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its, with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet, you have brought up my life from the pit. While still in the fish's belly, this is his prayer. See, some of you are going to pray this, or you think you're going to pray this when you get out of the trial. Pray this tonight. That he raised you back to life. In the midst of your trial, in the belly, Jonah's already praising that he's been brought back. He has hope. He has joy. That surpasses all understanding. Because he trusts God's sovereignty. He trusts God's care. He says, you have brought up my life from the pit. And so in the midst of your trial, I challenge you to praise God in the midst of your trial for your soon to come or long to come deliverance from it. Tonight, now, not tomorrow. Tonight. It says, O Lord, my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Verse 8, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. And that's really what sin is. All sin is idolatry. All sin. Our heart is an idol factory. We, ch- we, we, we churn out idols like you would not believe. And an idol is simply the raising up of something other than Jesus. Your sin that replaces Jesus on his throne is idolatry. Jonah just says, it's idolatry. My will over God's is idolatry. It's not just because I was scared. God, I have really good reasons for not going to Nineveh. Have you read Nahum? It's an awful place. I don't want to go there. He said, look, I put my will up here. I put my desire, my fear here where Jesus belongs, where God belongs. Sovereign over it all. And so he just simply likens it to idolatry. Worthless idols. They forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you. It's the Old Testament way of saying, God, I'll do whatever you ask of me. Because we've done that, right? You lost your iPhone. Say, God, you give me my iPhone back, I'll do whatever you want. I just, I need that back. I didn't back up my files. Right? How many, we did that as kids, right? I remember doing it in the laundry room in my first house in south of Chicago. South of Chicago. I remember being in the laundry room. I lost my wallet. Okay, God, 
You get me my wallet back, which probably had like $2 in it. You get me, right, like pack of baseball cards. God, you get me that, I will, I'll never swear again. I won't do that again, God. Do something for me, God. I'll do something for you. Oh, religion sets in. Oh, that exchange, that's not the great exchange Luther was talking about. Our wickedness for his righteousness. That's God, do something for me, I'll do something for you. We've all done that. God, get me through this semester. I got calculus. God, get me through my caps. God, get me through this trial at work. Get me through this quarter. Let me hit the numbers. Get me through this trial with my marriage. Then we're going to start going to church. We're going to start getting legit about this. You do it. You, you stir up. I want to see, show me you're still there. You, you do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to what you say. Right? Right? Who's done that? No one, just me. Awesome. And so we, we start to say, look, God, I'll do whatever you ask of me. And he says this. He says, I'll make my sacrifice to you. It's the Old Testament way of saying, look, I'm going to do whatever you ask of me. But Jonah meant it, as we're going to see. Jonah meant it this time. He may have said it in the past, but look, Jonah was going to be used mightily of God for a people that needed to hear about God. It's okay to come to a place to say, I'm broken. I'm useless, which means I'm in a perfect position to finally be used by God. I'm useless. I'm in the belly of a fish. I'm in the belly of a fish. I am worthless, useless. I'm on the verge of death. And God says, about time. Jeez, where have you been? This is awful. My girlfriend left me. Darn, you're flunking out of school. Look, I just lost my job. The kids are rebelling against me. Whatever trial you're in, and God says, I've been waiting for you to be broken. We've got to, what, be reduced to a minimum so that God can, what, pour in his maximum. And so he gets to that point. I pray we get to that point where we say, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And it's not just a statement of fact. This is a triumphant declaration. And in the American church, we simply don't get it. Salvation is of the Lord. Yay! We have food tonight? No donuts. I'm not going to this church again. Salvation is of the Lord, right? Yay! Do you believe that? Have you read Revelation? I want to be on that side of him. Right? Do you believe that this whole thing already has been won? Jesus says, it is finished. I know you're in the midst of it. I know you're in your trial, but you simply need to know I already secured the outcome. You will, whatever you're in right now, you will be delivered. Jesus says so. He says, it's finished. It's done. Life can still be terrible, but you need to know that I sealed the deal. It's over. The battle has been won. Look, I've been to combat. I was in Iraq. I was in Fallujah. If I could have had a general, if I could have had Jesus come down and say, look, look, you guys are going to go door to door. You're going to go kicking some stuff. You got snipers on the roof. Look, but I already know that you guys are going to win. 
Do you know how much more earnestly I would fight? I'd be like, this is on. It's gangbusters. We know the outcome. Let's roll. Take my vest off. Forget it. Let's go. Helmets. Yeah, it's 180 degrees outside. Jesus shows up and says, I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. This thing is finished. Go to Nineveh and talk about me. You're like, well, but I have school tomorrow. I don't think I'm going to... I don't do much talking on Monday. I just... A lot of emails at work. I just try to... Tuesday, maybe. Right? If you knew that the battle was going to be won, you would not slow down in your pace. Someone shows up and says, hey, dude, I've seen the future. Oh, my name's Jesus. You're going to win the football game. You're just like, you're dancing all over the field. You're going crazy. Right? Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. And he's in the belly of his trial. Salvation is of the Lord. And I've got a couple notes here to say, when did Jonah repent? We talked about this a little last week. We've talked about some hints here tonight. Look, in, in, in chapter 1, verse 9, it says he feared the Lord and was, was honest about his story, right? Like, oh, is that repentance? In chapter 1, verse 12, it says that Jonah allowed himself to be cast into the sea. Oh, is that his moment of repentance? Is that when he turned to the Lord? In verse 2, he says, Jonah called out to God during the three days and three nights of the belly of the fish. Was that, was, was that repentance? I got to know when he did it so that I can do it tonight. What did it look like? In 2.9, it says he renewed his commitment to his vow. When was it, Pastor Mark? When did he repent? I'll tell you very clearly. Repentance is not a one-step deal. It's not. He had a heart change. He had a, 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 he had a, a vision change. He had a renewal change. It's a constant, ongoing, multi-pronged practice before God. And it's your life vest. Jesus showed up on his public ministry, baptized with the Holy Spirit. He stands up to preach for the very first time. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. If you ever go to a church that doesn't preach repentance, run for your life. Run for your life at a pastor that won't tell you to repent. At a pastor that won't look inward and say, I had to repent. Run for your life. Jesus shows up. That's the first thing he says. I imagine he smiled. To the Jew and to the Gentile, people are like, repentance. Oh, Oh, Jesus, so harsh out the gate, bro. I imagine Jesus like, you guys, you wouldn't believe it. You've been separated from God. You're on the way to hell. (laughs) I'm here. You can repent. People are like, isn't that just for the people with the picket signs? The military funerals and the homosexuals and repent or perish. I imagine Jesus is like, you get to repent. You get to turn from where you're running to Tarshish tonight and say, I'm going to set my eyes back on you. You get to, he's so excited and we don't get excited about repentance. Look at your faces. No one's excited. Salvation is of the Lord. It's been secured. Repentance is this ongoing process. It's multi-pronged. There's no template. There's no specific words you need to say. It needs to be a head issue. It needs to be a heart issue. It needs to be a hands issue. You need to be renewed of your mind. You need to have a renewing of your heart. You need to stop doing some bad stuff. 
You need to start doing some good stuff. Because salvation has already been won. You're not saved by your works, but when you're saved, they will follow. And so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah into dry land. You think deliverance is going to be sexy? Here I am! I've repented! You know, you're going to come out of the trials smelling bad. You can see some gnarly things. You're going to smell pretty gnarly. It's not going to be sexy all the time. It's not going to be epic all the time. So this is the fish vomiting them out. Sometimes it's gross. Deliverance. But it's always good. Sometimes it's gross, the things you have to go through. The way God has to arrest you. Point you back to Jesus. Sometimes it's gross what we have to go through in a fallen and sinful world where sin finds us out. But when God grips you and arrests you and turns you back to Jesus, it's always good. That gross sin that God, I pray, is tugging on your heart about tonight is going to rip you. It's going to rip out your heart of stone and slug in a new heart of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel 36. It's gross. But that deliverance is always good. And it says this in Romans 8, 28. It says, all things work together for good. Not everything that happens is good. Some of you know that right now. If you've been on the earth longer than a few hours, you know that not all things that happen are good. The Bible doesn't say everything that happens to you will be good. Romans 8, 20 says, all things will work together for good. For whom? People who betray Jesus? People who have no faith in Jesus? No. It says, all things, good and bad, will be worked together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Jonah was called according to God's purpose to go into a dark place as Jesus was called by God the Father to go into a dark place. Because he knew that it would be worked together for good, though it sucked at times. It would be worked together for good. It says, so the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Christian, if you've never heard this before, you need to hear it now. As we go into a time of worship, I'll ask the band to come back up. You are called with a holy calling to be an ambassador, to go into dark places, to proclaim your testimony and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saved you, secured you, gripped you, moved you, changed you, so that people will see Jesus on earth when they see the church. Called according to his purpose. Jonah was called. Jonah was arrested. Jonah was repentant. Jonah has been delivered. And now he will press forward.
And so we praise Jesus that salvation is of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, listening from your throne to every thought in the room, good, bad, and ugly, knowing that you'll return, knowing that our salvation is secured, I pray we take it to heart tonight that our sin separates from you, us from you. It's cosmic treason. But that we would lay down those worthless idols. That we would set our gaze back on you. We would set our sin down at the cross because you took it down to hell for us. And we would be encouraged that we're to move forward now. Called with a holy calling. Knowing that not everything that happens is good, but all things will be worked together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Jesus, we're going to worship you now. I just pray that you would excite the church, that you would equip the church, Holy Spirit, that you would sink all things from you into the hearts of the church, that we see you high and lifted up, and that we get excited about your mission, to be on your mission, your calling for our life, that we would not be afraid to reach out this week to talk to those that need to hear as those in Nineveh needed to hear. So Jesus... Be glorified in this time of worship. Do a work in your people now. The sermon's just begun, Holy Spirit. Would you go to work on your people so that Jesus may be high and lifted up? In Jesus' name, amen.